Welcome in, welcome back to Revolutionary Roulette. I'm Rob Zielinski, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zielinski. That's Z-I-E-L-I-N-S-K-I. Follow us on Instagram at Revolutionary Roulette, or email the show at revolutionaryroulette at gmail.com. And I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Joshua Catlow. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You can find me on Facebook at Joshua Patrick. You can find me on Instagram at the same, at Joshua Patrick. And you can find me on Twitter at Joshua Catlow, usually in an argument involving why Shock G was one of the greatest MCs to ever grasp a microphone. So um, shout out to Shock G. That was Digital Underground, The Humpty Dance, and obviously um, him passing away earlier this week at 57. We kept with the theme last Rob, last week we had Black Rob. So we thought we'd pay a tribute to uh, Shock G. And then I think two weeks before that it was DMX. So let's hope next week we don't have anybody to uh, play some music say, too. We we might have to quit the podcast if we keep losing people. Like, yeah, the fuck. Well, it, it, let's just be perfectly honest here. It depends on who we lose. Like, why can't Bon Jovi get in the fucking plane and <laughs> do us all a favor? But instead, we keep losing fucking DMX. Well, some people looked um, down upon him, but that's n- nothing to do with our podcast. Or for now. <laughs> You could join us on Patreon, and I could tell you some reasons as to why people weren't the biggest fan of DMX. There you go. Patreon.com slash Revolutionary Roulette. And you can find me on this podcast hitting the fucking post and teasing the shit out of things, just like (laughs) big league radio stars. A true professional. So uh, around the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, a few elites in the English colonies made a discovery that would make a significant impact for the next almost 250 years. And the <laughs> the discovery was that by creating a country, a nation named the United States, they could take over all of the profits, all of the political power, and literally all of the land away from the elites in England. So when you look at the American Revolution from this perspective, It was a stroke of greedy genius, Uh, greed for power and profits. And as Zinn puts it, and the founding fathers deserve the odd tribute they have received over the centuries. They created the most effective system of national control devised in modern times and showed future generations of leaders the advantages of combining paternalism with command. So hold, hold up, (laughs) hold Uh, You mean to tell me that (laughs) Parliament and a host of other Caucasian Americans came up with a way to monetize even more than they already are, a way for them to become even more financially elite? Yes. Yep. That's what we're saying. Uh, yeah, so we're we're, right. we're talking about people in positions of authority restricting the freedoms of their constituents and it's supposedly being in the best interest of those constituents 
but in fact they are uh doing uh, very bad things for them. Yeah, and as Borat would say. Interest. Not. <laughs> <laughs> I am rich, not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, we'll get to it later in the uh, the episode, but they speak about um, how uh, generals profited and pi- privates um, met with death. But continue on. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Um, no, good point because I don't I I don't think I have that uh, in, in the old outline here. So um, as we know, and I'm here to remind you that Bacon's Rebellion happened in 1676, and by 1760. So again, for those of you keeping score at home, that's a mere 84 years later. We're uh, there were six black slave rebellions, 40 riots for various reasons, and 18 uprisings specifically organized to overthrow the governments of the colonies. And also by the 1760s, we have this again clear cut upper class in the colonies as we discussed last week, and these upper-class ghouls made up most of the local leadership, the social and political elites. And these savvy fucks would redirect any rebellious drive towards England and the local English officials. It wasn't any kind of uh, conspiracy, but just a sort of organic, strategic response they all had because Hey, it's it's not our fault. It's somebody else's, and that's someone else's. Uh, it was the British imp- Empire. Can you seriously believe that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Had to had, had to give it to you. But <laughs> so Bacon's Rebellion, uh, first armed insurrection by American colonists against the colonial government. Um, this was probably close to a hundred years before the American Revolution, and they're still trying to be, as you put it so eloquently, the savviest of fucks um, to go out of their way and keep putting the uh, what we discussed last week, the middle to lower middle to not even close to middle class mm-hmm. uh, in their respected places which is at the bottom building the upper echelons wealth that's right and this is again similar redundant yeah it's just (laughs) that's how it's gonna be and and we're gonna try and limit the redundancies in which we speak of every week however when it is of the utmost importance and prove to mm-hmm. what we're speaking of, we got to bring it up. So get used to it, folks. The 1% took advantage of millions and millions of people throughout the history. And, and it happened century after century after century, and it's still going on today. So, uh, so speaking Y'all of better the, recognize. <laughs> speaking of the British Empire, uh, they defeated the French in the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. It's the same shit, uh, but it's what it's known as in America. In 1763, when the Treaty of Paris was signed. So this expelled the French from North America, and they were no longer a threat to the colonial leadership. So this left only the English and the Indians 
as their adversaries. The Brits weren't stupid either. In the proclamation of 1763, they tried to score brownie points with the Indians by declaring that uh, any land west of the Appalachian Mountains was out of bounds for any white settlers. So, of course, the colonial elite were like, okay, these fucking milk MIT British fucks need to get out of the way for good, and then we'll have the capacity to deal with the Indians on a much larger scale. And once again, they were taking advantage of not only uh, the mountainous region to kind of prevent a backdrop for protection, they were also taking advantage of the mountainous region to um, kind of show empathy is the wrong word and not what I'm looking for, but um, trying to show boundaries for mm-hmm. um, their fellow uh, men that this belongs to a certain class of people. And uh, as per mm-hmm. usual to everything we've talked about, it it didn't work out so swimmingly. <laughs> you can say that again. Um, don't say it again. Don't even fucking don't even. I'm good. But, but since England was victorious in the Seven Years War, they could set their sights solely on the colonies. The British Empire needed income to pay for this long ass war. They just fought and won, as we mentioned before. And the colonies have been pretty damn profitable for them. Uh, just for some perspective, the colonial trade made the British economy about 500,000 pounds in 1700 and jumped to 2.8 million pounds by 1770. So we're, and we're talking about like uh, 550 million in today's poundage. Exactly. Or very close to my weight. Um <laughs> Three spins, but uh, yeah. Anyway, the and this book was written. Um, the revision of this book was written probably fifteen years ago. So even now, it's probably even um, expanded from that five and a half million mark that Rob just gave us. But uh, needless to say, the the plan that they had at hand. Um, was working and working to a T. So um, here's the key, guys. The English needed the colonial wealth coming in more and more, and the colonial leadership needed the English less and less. So now we have the makings of a true conflict. And as we all know, uh, conflict is the key to change. And conflict is also the key for government to be able to fight battles in the name of. So um, whenever you have an issue, whether it be um, weapons of mass destruction or 400 years ago when we were trying to separate from British rule, Uh, You can just throw a little bit of conflict in there and it's supposed to make the the undertones less harsh. Uh, They're trying to attack us with such and such. So 
we're just really fighting back in the name of helping you, or at least that's how they tried to put it. That's right. So the French and Indian War helped to further divide the classes, especially in the cities. And uh, <laughs> so I'm going to uh, just quote from Zinn here. A newspaper editor wrote about the growing number of beggars and wandering poor. No more beggars. <laughs> more beggars in the streets of the city. Letters in the papers questioned the distribution of wealth. How often have our streets been covered with thousands of barrels of flour for trade while our near neighbors can hardly procure enough to make a dumpling to satisfy hunger? Yeah, so at this point, they're strongly, uh, I'm going to write a strongly worded letter against <laughs> the tyranny and the fact that half the people in this colony can't even afford to eat, right? let alone function properly. So, um once again, it's it's uh, it's something that wasn't working out the way they planned it. Yeah, it's just completely uh, the the wedge is being driven uh, deeper and deeper and um, separating the sort of classes. So in Boston, people of the lower class would go to the town meeting to vent their complaints to the leadership, and the governors were like. Holy sh holy shit. These guys are fucking pissed. And they outnumber us. How is it possible <laughs> that there's so many people that outnumber us when there's like six of us who own 50% of the wealth? What's the deal? So with, I wish I could do the accent like you do, man. But what's the deal with us fucking these guys over? So what's the deal with the political process? <laughs> so um, what they tried to do was just placate these pissed off poor people. Um, there's your there's your answer. Just placating lip service um, by creating a sort of caucus that gave them a voice in the political realm and allowed laborers and artisans to be more involved in the political process. Exactly. And during them to be involved in the political process, they were kind of in a way to piggyback off what you just said, telling the elitists to kind of suck their caucus. It's uh, it's you can't it, do that when I'm drinking. Uh, my bad. Uh, that's what I'm here for. The humorous <laughs> aspect. I'm really not knowledgeable at all. I don't know the shit. Stamp Act. What the fuck is that? <laughs> no, but seriously, they. uh it was their way of being heard, being felt, like fight the power. Like, you guys, we've had enough of this bullshit. We've yeah. been carrying you on our backs for God knows how long as of right now. And we're trying to come up on a little something, something ourselves to put it in a lack of elegance uh, <laughs> or eloquence. Um, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to get something for their family and friends as well, because mm -hmm. they see that everybody else is making out. Why shouldn't we have a hand in it? That's right. So, but still it's, it seemed like not much improved when it came to the quality of life 
of these poor Bostonians. And it was written in the Boston Gazette in 1763 that a few persons in power were promoting political projects for keeping the people poor in order to make them humble. So we have the resentment was just growing over the next few years. So when the British passed the Stamp Act of 1765, almost, I think, you know, most Americans learn about the Stamp Act of uh, 1765. So, but that's when shit started going down. Basically, the Brits figured out a way of getting the population of the colonies to pay for the French war. Like, we, oui, we, oui. croissant. Exactly. Manuel Macron. <laughs> I can't believe you don't like milk in your tea. Um, the Stamp oh. Act, as <laughs> as I did some research on, because uh, once again, I got a 2.2 uh, grade point average. But um, <laughs> the Stamp Act was all legal documents, newspapers, wills, marriage licenses, diplomas, and any other type of newly brought paperwork uh it was the way of taxing to pay for mm -hmm. uh the war yeah uh you know stupid american you are now paying for the war with their stamps and you like pay for them you lick them and you stick them we i am still talking about their stamps i'm not some kind of french pervert and from what i learned this was the first direct tax that the Europeans applied against mm -hmm. um, American colonials. So, yeah, so uh, um, many more to come. Right. Uh, but that was the first. I was just thinking about that. If the if it was the Stamp Act or if it was the whole uh, Boston Tea Party thing, well, but uh, well, Boston Tea Party came about. I don't want to give you a year, but. Uh, it was um, a few years down the road. I also learned about okay. that as well today. There you go. Look at you, book learning and such. I'm trying, baby. I'm trying. <laughs> so the colonies were impacted by that damn French war, all in the name of the expansion of the British Empire. So this is where it gets really good. The very next summer in 1766, a shoemaker by the name of Ebenezer McIntosh my guy, he led a Ebenezer. mob. <laughs> Ebenezer McIntosh, such a oh my god, dynamite name. Uh, so he leads a uh, angry mob of Bostonians in just a, absolutely demolishing the house of Andrew Oliver, who was this rich Boston merchant. So shall we say ransacked? <laughs> <laughs> Wordsmith and. Pretty much the same angry Bostonian mob two weeks later showed up to Thomas Hutchinson's house. So Tommy Hutch here was a rich elitist prick who was still ruling the colonies in the name of England. So the mob was like, yeah, we kind of we kind of had enough of that and, and uh, enough of you and people like you and looted the house of all of its furniture and whatever lavish objects they could find. They drank all the wine in the cellar, uh, which is just such a fucking baller power move. I was going to say, that's gangster. <laughs> Straight to the core, <laughs> baby. <laughs> and, and then took axes and smashed up the house. Uh, mixing alcohol and axes 
probably isn't the best idea, but I do like where their heads were at. Actually, people are making a lot of money on that. We're, we're making a lot of money on that with axe throwing right before COVID hit. You had places where you could go throw axes, have a couple beers, accidentally catch your significant other slipping. And <laughs> I mean, it's that does good look times. Fun. I, do, I, I have been wanting to try that for a while now. So, um, well, I have a couple of them. We can go out and. Um, <laughs> you have a couple of them. I do, and we could uh, we could go out and uh, I got a picture I'll send you. Um, once again, derailing the show, but yeah, I cool. was I was taking a hike in um, Lockport area, and as I'm walking, there's this spray painted picture of a bear, and it looked identical to the 1960-ish Cubs uniform bear. Okay, and I was like. Was this some angry Cubs fan after Moises Alou got Bartman <laughs> and he just drew this on the tree and he was throwing his axe at it? Yeah. Like, oh, my God. They had to be. And I'm like, yeah. this motherfucker was using that as target practice. That's so good. So I'll send you the picture. We'll head out there and let your White Sox fan uh, do your thing, throw some axes at it, maybe have a pint or two. How about I was going to say it was either that or like – you know, after Barrett punched Pruszynski, I went out there and fucking carved it into the into the. There you go. Part. Yeah, <laughs> weakest punch in the history of fights, by the way. Yeah, but, I know. Seriously, um, he basically like got here and then like pushed them. Exactly. So, um, and I actually have a whole bunch of stumps in my yard, so um, if I could just like hang them up, like we're just we're a perfect match. You're my fucking soulmate. You got axes. I got tree stumps. Like, let's fucking do this. Let's do it. But not do uh, the alcohol part. Cause I will hurt myself. That's fair enough. I'll do the alcohol parts. <laughs> so um, real quick, before you go yeah. back into it, um, we were speaking to James Otis and, um, he was, uh, believed that American reps in parliament, were being screwed over. And he was a loyalist who supported uh, British taxes after uh, the war with France. He believed Americans should be able to vote in parliament as well, though. I don't know if you plan on getting to that or if you've already spoke about James Otis. Once again, my apologies, but um, I did some notes and I wanted to get it out there. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's good stuff. I haven't uh, touched on on Otis. Um, but I do have something to say about those, uh, the loyalist caucus basically have at it. Hoss. So, um, in the book, uh, Zinc quotes an authorized report to England from the colonial officials, which mentions that the actions of the pissed off Bostonian mob was part of a larger scheme in which the houses of 15 rich people were to be destroyed as part of a war of plunder of general leveling and taking away the distinction of rich and poor. So again, we see the want, the need for leveling here. And it's like, Hey, rich guys, we're not saying that you need to come all the fucking way down to our poor ass level. We're saying, give us some of the enormous surplus that you have. Thanks to our fucking labor. Um, and treat us with some dignity and everything will be cool. Um, yeah. So it's like, you know, people who are listening to this, you know, 
folks, do you fucking get it yet? Like we need to reach a class consciousness and we need it now. We needed it hundreds of years ago. Class war has been happening since the class system was established and most of us just didn't know it and still don't fucking know it. The rich and powerful are waging war against the lower classes, not just the poor class, all of the fucking uh, classes below them right now, just as they always have been. And it seems oh, like I'm sick it, of your shit. it seems like a silly It seems like an elementary type comment to to say that they're going to continue to do so until we step in and reclaim the power, if you will. But that's exactly what's going to happen. And it's just going to manifest itself in many different ways, too. Um, it doesn't have to be with uh, with taxes or it doesn't have to be with um, the one percent not being taxed. It it. it, it it, it man itself manifests itself in the court system, the judicial system, the media. Um, yes, the fucking earth dying because of imperialism and just uh, the selfishness of rich people. And yeah, yeah. Um, in the in the famous words, let me rephrase. Not famous because many people probably don't know about it, but in the words of one of both of our idols there's really nothing wrong with earth. It's the people that are mm -hmm. fucked. That's right. Which is such a poignant and beautiful comment. Right. Mother nature has everything going correct, except for the people that walk on her. So, right. I mean, yeah. Uh, Mother earth is going to, survive whatever the fuck it is we don't survive um she's still going to be around you know until the the sun um overheats and it's a star so it's going to explode and we're all going to fucking die at some point but <laughs> let's try to keep everybody alive until then because that might be you know uh millions of fucking years down the road so Greta Thunberg if you listen listening Hell, <laughs> and um, that uh, reminded me of not that what you said before. Um, reminded me of a James Baldwin quote, another revolutionary from the the sixties. So um, one of my favorites. I'll, I'll look that up uh, shortly. So the question Zinn poses is: Could the class hatred be focused against the pro-British elite and deflected from the nationalist elite? So the national elite had to walk, and we're talking about colonial uh, leadership when we talk about the nationalist elite. Um, they needed to walk a fine line of giving the middle class just enough to be comfortable, stay on their side, and keep them under control and make them think that they're doing them favors and not take any part of any revolt and but also not give them too much leeway that would threaten any of their uh, the elites uh, wealth and power. Give the public enough rope to hang themselves, but 
no place to throw it over. If dang, you dang it, yeah. I know that's a horrible analogy, and it, <laughs> but that's the first thing that came to mind because it's just like, yeah, they're always trying to fuck you. And when I mean they, um, whatever form of government, we're talking about colonialism right now and uh, mm-hmm. British ruling in parliament um, all the way to today. So, uh, that's right. It, right. It, the, Maybe that wasn't the best of analogies, but uh, <laughs> you get the point. You get the point. I got the point. Um, uh, so all white laborers were known as mechanics in the uh, colonial cities in the 1770s. So, and they were basically demanding what we want today when it comes to uh, political democracy. I'm going to read from the book real quick here. Um, so they want book of James. <laughs> uh, so we're talking about open meetings of representative assemblies, public galleries in the legislative halls, and the publishing of roll call votes so that constituents could check on representatives. They wanted open air meetings where the population could participate in making policy, more equitable taxes, price controls, and the election of mechanics and other ordinary people to government posts. What a wonderful thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were doing, you know, prior to this, um, they're doing everything behind closed doors, right? Mm-hmm. And that that shit is still happening now because, uh, you know, a lot of the politicians are saying like, well, you know, we're not, we're not saying things on social media or... Um, on mainstream media, but, but, uh, we're having the conversations behind doors. Well, (laughs) the people should fucking know you represent us. We are your constituents. You represent us. We should be in on those conversations. And yeah, we're supposed to be your voice. Right. Yeah. You're just like, you're just the mega amplifier. Exactly. So yeah, it's just, uh, it's unbelievable that all this shit is just still fucking happening. Like every little thing, except for like a- actual, you know, slavery, actually owning people. But we basically still have like indentured servants. Like people don't even, uh, you know, they work and should I just make- sign my contract? <laughs> right. They don't even make a, a, um, a living wage. So. Um, and it just, you know, you see these memes where it's like American hunger could be solved if we just didn't, if we made one less, um, aircraft carrier, it's like, what the fuck? Like we already have, you know, 10 more than the next like two or three countries and we just keep making more. But, um, you know, our imperialism is way more fucking important than starving people in, in our own country. Yeah, it's uh, some things never change. And uh, unfortunately, this is one of them until we're able to, once again, figure out a way to take the power back. Uh, We're going to continue to be doormats for the political system. And um, there was something I wanted to speak about earlier. There's three branches to the government. And for those of you that continually complain about 
the media, whether you're a CNN, Fox News, wherever you fall and get your coverage, whether it's Twitter, where you get your information from. I know a lot of people get their news from there. Uh, it's your obligation to discern the information and figure out what's factual and what's not. Because I hate to break this to you. <laughs> the media is the fourth branch of the government. It, it, there's, it's their job to keep us divided because there's no money for the government in kumbaya. There's no money in happiness. There's only places to take advantage of the American people when it comes to us being divided, plain and simple. Yeah. And um, again, that goes back to uh, Noam Chomsky's book, um, Manufacturing Consent. Um, we just watch these, you know, Ma these mainstream media cable news shows and um you know you don't realize that you know all these you know like msnbc they take money from uh you know fucking raytheon and so it's like no wonder why there's all this like fear-mongering and war-mongering on uh networks like that and and cnn and Fox News. So they, they all do it, but it's all in the name of money. I mean, uh, again, MSNBC fucking owned by Comcast. You think Comcast is going to, uh, you know, put news out there that is like uh, pro-union? Like, like, no, like they. <laughs> um, yeah, just just check out Noam Chomsky's uh, manufacturing consent when it comes to um, mainstream media. And what it makes me think of, and once again, this is a little off topic, but it makes me think of Goodwill Hunting when they're in the bar and the ponytail prick when <laughs> what's uh, when Will is trying to hit on, um, I forget her name in the movie, yeah. but when he's trying to hit on her and she's like, what? Uh, he comes over with his Michael Bolton ponytail and he says, <laughs> so what class was this? And, uh, and then Will's just like, you know, are you going to regurgitate word for word every part of this fucking book? Or do you have some right. original thoughts on the matter for yourself that you'd like to spit out? Or right. are you just going to sit here and make fun of my friends? Well, essentially, the fucking government has been making fun of our friends for 400 plus years. Well, let me rephrase and just make it simple. Since the beginning of time and government. Right. Yeah. I mean, they really have been. I mean, newspapers have had their agendas uh, carved out from the inception of fucking newspapers. So, you know, whatever, whatever sells, um, Stamp it, it. and, uh, you know, motherfuckers. <laughs> if it bleeds, it leads. Right. Um, That's so essentially it, uh, according to historian Gary Nash in Philadelphia, class consciousness was growing. And so much so that politicians of both the conservative loyalists who were sympathetic to England and the American revolutionary felt threatened by <laughs> by the growing uh, class consciousness. Mm, bottom tooth the third. <laughs> Joshua, bottom tooth the third. Yeah. So um, once again, class class consciousness. Um, it, it's this. It, it you know. We're talking about the same shit over and over, but we're really trying to fucking hammer this home because 
so many people like that's the whole point. It's in the word, right? Class consciousness. So many people aren't even conscious of the war that's being waged onto them from the elites. And they're just, we're just fucking taking it because of the mainstream media is like, you know, trying to um, help with dividing people. And there's so much money in it. I don't know how I was going to get there, but what I wanted to say was give yourself excuse me, give yourselves an identity. Um, that's what essentially we have to do. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say yourselves, I should say ourselves. We need to right. give ourselves an identity. Um, make it known that we're here and we're not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe anymore. Than <laughs> many people right. are. Right. And um, I, going back a little bit, I wanted to say that after reading this book, it is so easy to sniff out the fucking bullshit on mainstream media in articles. Um, and then you learn out, you, you figure out, you learn um, the, the articles are written by people who work for this corporation. So then you see, their agenda. You're like, Oh, that makes so much sense. Like this is this fucking guy works for Vox. He's a fucking neoliberal. They're all tied in with MSNBC and that's why they have him on this fucking show. And it's just, it, it's again, big club and you ain't in it. We ain't fucking in it. Yeah. And I know a lot of people that make great money and even you motherfuckers ain't in it. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> that's exactly right. I, although they probably could, you know, um, eventually, if the, it depends on how much money they could, they could buy. Yeah, how much Dodge coin you buy, motherfucker? <laughs> Zero. Oh, Doge, yeah. Doge coin. My Dodge. See, I Dodge Doge. Doge. I, don't, I, <laughs> I don't fucking know. So, <laughs> Thomas Paine, Joshua, <laughs> Thomas Paine, who famously wrote the book Common Sense, was a middle class leader who helped launch a, quote, full-scale attack on wealth and even on the right to acquire unlimited private property. So I just thought that was a nice little fun fact about T-Pain for anyone who has ever read uh, Common Sense in high school or, or whatever. If not, it's a, it's a pretty short listen on audiobooks. I'll have to check that out myself because I was doing some research on Thomas Paine before the show, and mm -hmm. I, di I didn't get much out of it. What was the name of the book again? Common sense, which you waved to bye bye to long time ago. Adios, adios, sayonara, arrivederci, a bye bye. So, yep, yeah, <laughs> Um, in we'll, we'll jump back a little bit in the 1740s. I hope that book is auto tuned when they're reading it. I'm sorry. <laughs> That would be dope as fuck if it really was. In the colonialism. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. The, the 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 best part is like T Pain is actually like an amazing fucking singer. He has this amazing voice, and he still uses that auto tune all the time. So if you ever get a chance, like look up you know YouTube videos of T Pain just straight up singing, and his voice is beautiful. I can't believe I just heard you say that. Beautiful. Uh <laughs> You're welcome. In uh, so again, in 1740s, New Jersey, 
there were tenant riots in 1750s and 1760s New York. There were tenant uprisings in the Hudson Valley and in northeastern New York State, a rebellion actually led to the carving out of land that is today now known as Vermont. Correct. And once again, it seems like my job here is to equate things to everyday living in the present because I don't have as much um, knowledge or uh, a quality education under my belt as obviously you did. But um, the tenant uprising is similar to what people have to do today just to get fair living conditions, especially in cities like New York before, not before it was carved out to Vermont, but just living quarters are owned by slumlords who don't give a shit about you as well, but mm -hmm. are never held accountable for the conditions they put you in. Um, so it's very similar to what we're dealing with back in the 1730s. Right. So, uh, and again, like in, in 2020, um, there should have been a moratorium on all rent and all mortgages along with those, uh, you know, we'll call them survival checks because some people needed a straight up to survive. They weren't just a fucking stimulus check, right? Um, they actually needed uh, for their livelihood. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that that didn't kick off a sort of tenant uprising because, you know, we just have landlords asking for their money and these people are like, I can't even go to work and you know whatever else so I, you know it's going to be scary i know they've lifted some of the uh you know the evictions so evictions can uh now be started soon um so it, it is slightly possible i have no you know i'm just speculating that there is a chance that there could be tenant uprisings um in various cities across the united states especially in places like uh that tend to be a little bit more progressive, like say like Austin, um, Texas, Austin, Massachusetts. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> um, the other thing I do want to, I, I will address this because somebody uh, once asked me about this and um, I once owned a building. I bought you filthy a, fuck. I know I was a fucking, so I, I bought a building um, it was a four unit building in the city of Chicago. Um, I lived in one of the units, um, and then I rented out to, you know, three other families we'll say. And, um, so yeah, I did, you know, use their rent money to pay off the mortgage. And then a little bit left over was, you know, kind of pocket money. Um, but the, the building was just like so old. A lot of that money went right back into the building. And I was, I was, as far as you can say, a good landlord. I took care of everybody right away. As soon as I could, I wasn't like leaving people hanging when they, you know, complained about things. And then, um, as soon as I moved out of there, I sold the building because I knew I couldn't be there to, uh, help fix things when they needed fixing. And I, I knew I couldn't do it 
in a timely manner and leave these people just fucking hanging. So I'm like, I got to, you know, sell the building and whatever. So, um, somebody asked me like, how, what do you think some of your, you know, he was kind of being derogatory about it, right? Like, what do you think your comrades would think about you owning a building? And I'm like, I mean, I would hope that they would uh, recognize that, um, I know I kind of fucked up there. Um, I'm not, you know, at this point, I'm not like, sorry about it. I was able to provide, um, a house, uh, for my, my family, my kids. Um, but you know, if I had the chance to do it again, it's very likely that I wouldn't because of the knowledge that I now have and the fucking anxiety that it gave me because I constantly had people texting me while I was at work and being like, you know, Hey, this broke or whatever. And then I'm like, texting them back. Hey, it's the first of the month. And then they're not paying. And now I can't pay the mortgage. So it was just a clusterfuck. It wasn't like, I wasn't like this sort of slumlord that was just collecting all the monies. And, uh, anytime something was leaking, they're like, yeah, fuck it. You know, it's fine. You know, uh, we'll fix it later or whatever. So, um, yeah, you you know, full, full disclosure here. Yeah. Unfortunately for you, you're one of the people that had um, a building that has a conscience. Um, I know a couple people that own buildings and have conscience. And as soon as their tenants come up with a complaint, whether it's the most minute of things or it's an actual real life tough situation that mm-hmm. they jump on it with um, with authority and speed. And that's what you did. I, I knew you back when you owned the building and you were holding yourself accountable when something needed to be fixed. So I would look at you um, as someone who, yes, maybe profited a small amount off of said building, but also somebody who tenants would look up to and say, yeah, he did right by us. So um, I would, I would like to think so. Um, but I, you know, now on the other hand, um, I would ag- agree in a way uh, with chairman Mao, there shouldn't be any landlords, the government, the, the people should with through their taxes, um, you know, pay for housing for all um, people shouldn't be making profit off of the places where people fucking live. They need to live there. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll pick up uh, and finish uh, chapter four next week, but we will end on a uh, quick quote from Zen. They were long lasting social movements, highly organized involving the creation of counter governments. So I, again, I think the the key there is the, the long lasting social movements, um, and being highly organized. We still see, um, uh, you know, well, it's not a mainstream media, certainly, but if you follow, uh, people like independent journalists, like, um, Robert Evans is a good one. Um, he writes for, for Bellingcat and, uh, has a a podcast and I hire, uh, I Heart Radio, but he is a um, a journalist who lives near Portland, and they cover they they are still um, protesting just about every day um, ever since uh, you know the murder of George Floyd uh, last summer. So um, again, that that's part of the long lasting social movements and being highly organized. So we need to uh, kind of build 
off of that if we want things to get better. There needs to be, you know, some sort of, uh, like Bernie says, a, a political revolution um, for just <laughs> everybody to have the basic things that they need, like uh, that they shouldn't be paying for, like healthcare, um, housing, even simple uh, essentials like, say, like uh, bread and water. Like, you know, that shit should be fucking free. Not free, but we'd be paying it, you know, with our tax money and just be, you know, kind of regulated by the by the state. Um, I know you said that we were wrapping up and I want to get off topic completely away from the book and just speak on uh, the conviction of Derek Chauvin for a brief moment. Yeah, you got um, about uh, four minutes. It's not going to take anywhere near as long as that. I just want to make a quick point. Um, justice was a word that was being thrown around a lot this week. Um, justice for George Floyd. And uh, I beg to differ. Um, justice was not what happened. Justice would have been George Floyd being able to breathe and essentially having his day in court. Um for whatever he was being arrested for at that time. They muddy the water so much uh, to try and bring up negative aspects of his life and things that he did in his past to make him look like a horrible human being in the eyes of the state. So um, it wasn't justice when Derek Chauvin was convicted. Um, justice maybe would have been George Floyd being able to put his knee on Chauvin's neck for nine minutes and 23 seconds. It was accountability. Mm -hmm. Accountability is what happened when Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three counts. And I hesitate to even use the word accountability because by my math, I see everywhere that it says up to 40 years is what he can serve. Okay. Um, by my math, it's 34. We're splitting hairs at this point. So let's just call it 40 because I've probably made a mistake. Um, but I hesitate to use the word or terminology accountability even because when sentencing rolls around, that's the most important part outside of George Floyd losing his life of this whole process. Um, the judicial system on that day essentially said that George Floyd's life mattered. And that's a huge step in the right direction. However, how much did George Floyd's life matter? Was he perfect? No. Guess what? I'm not going to use that cliche that nobody is. None of you motherfuckers on the jury are shoving the gavel. Nobody is even close to perfect. So when we try and muddy the waters, we could have did the same shit to you guys. But 
we'll see just how much George Floyd's life mattered when it comes to sentencing. Because I have this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach that if Chauvin served six years, I'd shit a brick. And I think it's even going to be less than that. So we'll see exactly how much George Floyd's life matters when it comes to sentencing. And I believe that sometime, um, I'm not going to spread misinformation, but the sentencing will be sometime in the not too distant future. So that's what's going to really tell if accountability was served or if we just finally got the empirical piece of video that could not be overruled. And um, tomorrow is the Oscars. The Oscars are trying to promote diversity for this year, for the first time in the history of that cracker ass cracker show. And I'm guilty because I fucking love the the Oscars and I love movies. Um, I diversify myself with them. I watch uh, films by black filmmakers, white filmmakers, Asian. Um, but that's regardless of the point. Um, whatever wins best picture or best film should be some type of body cam footage from what we've been dealing with for the past two years especially, mm -hmm. but essentially since cameras have been on phones. Right. And uh, I hopped down from my soapbox. Sorry, I took it a little past an hour, my bad. <laughs> you, yeah. Um... That's so last week you went over your 10 seconds and this week you went over your four fucking minutes. So, um, I thought I did cool. good on this one though. There, there, there was yeah. some good shit in there. There was, there was, there were some nuggets. Don't you boo me. <laughs> so, so, uh, next week, uh, we will talk about the regulators, not, not, not fucking not dog and warranty. Not, it was a clear back night, a clear <laughs> white night. Okay. Um, but yeah, regulators, uh, from the, uh, I want to say Hudson Valley. So, um, we'll see you next week. <laughs> oh, check us out on, uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash revolutionary roulette. And then we have a webpage on Instagram, which is uh, revolutionary roulette. Yep. And then um, obviously you just search revolutionary roulette when it comes to a YouTube search, which is kind of null and void because we're on YouTube right now. But uh, <laughs> rest in peace, Shock G. Let's not lose uh, any more artists this week. Um, unless it's Bon Jovi. <laughs> good night, folks. Yeah, the two viewers and um, tell your family to check us out on the podcast. Have a good night, y'all. Thank you for listening.